From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are indeed among friends. And tonight, this is kind of special. I'm coming to you live from in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. It's been a while. It has been a while. I've been broadcasting from my little studio beneath the stairs in Old Thornhill, north of Toronto, but I've missed this place. I've missed Carlos, my technical producer, and, uh, well, quite frankly, my mail was piling up. I actually got a call from reception here a couple of weeks ago asking me to please swing by, please, 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 and get my mail. And... It was like, maybe I'm dating myself, but you remember the old Dagwood Bumstead cartoon? He would he would open the closet and everything would come pouring out. That's what it was like in my mail bunk. I shoved about 24 different packages and parcels into the back of my car, and I will open those up. Actually, I'll get my little guys. They're not so little anymore. They'll be 14 next month, but they love to open my mail, the books that I get, as you can imagine, in this job. Oh, look, Dad, it's another book on Bigfoot or the pyramids. They just It's like Christmas, so we'll have some fun this week. The Honorable Paul Hellier is standing by, along with Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, and I'll bring them on board in just a moment. Coming up in the second hour, open lines. I always look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you. Open lines, just a quick reminder, if you haven't already done so, please... Register at strangeplanet.ca. That's my website, strangeplanet.ca. And sign up for my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. I'm already at work on the October issue. Again, go to strangeplanet.ca. And up near the top, you'll see a button. Just click on that and enter your email address, and you're done. And then you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum delivered right to your email inbox every month, absolutely free. It is Hard to believe, to say the least. Uh, This month, earlier this month, in fact, marked the 15th anniversary of a public announcement that really took the UFO disclosure movement by storm. Canada's former defense minister, former deputy prime minister, publicly announced before a crowd at the University of Toronto back in 2005 that he believed in the existence of UFOs. In fact, he said UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying over your head. The Honorable Paul Hellier, Canada's youngest member of Parliament when he was first elected in 1949, and the youngest cabinet minister appointed to Louis St. Laurent's government eight years later. Although Mr. Hellier is best known for the unification of the Canadian Armed Forces and for his 1968 chairmanship of the Task Force on Housing and Urban Development, he's maintained a lifelong interest in macroeconomics. This led him to form Action Canada, a populist movement dedicated to the concepts of full employment and low inflation, with an emphasis on quality of life issues. Through the years, as a journalist and political commentator, he has continued to fight for economic reforms and has written several books on the subject. In recent years, he's become interested, of course, in the extraterrestrial presence and their superior technology that we've been emulating. As I mentioned, in September 2005, he became the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries, the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries to state unequivocally UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead. He's authored over a dozen books, including Light at the End of the Tunnel, A Survival Plan for the Human Species, The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis, 
Hope Restored, an autobiography of Paul Hellyer, My Life and Views on Canada, the U.S., the World, and the Universe. And his brand new one, not quite yet available, although I think you may be able to pre-order on Amazon. We'll find out in a moment. And it's called Liberated, the Economics of Hope. Paul, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. Good to hear your voice. Likewise, and I appreciate you staying up late. This is past my bedtime, but for you, it's a pleasure. Oh, it's past my bedtime, too, but somehow we make it work. <laughs> I also want to welcome a good friend of the program, the executive director of Zeland News Network and Zeland Communications, a long-time UFO disclosure advocate, Victor Vigiani. Victor, welcome aboard. Great to be with you, Richard. And you were involved in Paul's public announcement back in 2005. Let me just get your take on it, Victor. Just explain what your involvement in that historic date was. Well, first of all, I have to go back to the radio program, uh, Strange Days Indeed, on another radio station. The host there was Errol Bruce Knapp, and we had finished a program. And at the time, Mike Bird and I were planning the uh, uh, symposium on UFO disclosure and planetary directions. And so Errol and I had just finished a program, and I was packing up my things and waiting to go out the door. And one of the ops called me and said, Victor, there's a call for you in line one. I I didn't want to take the call. I was tired, and it was like 1 o'clock in the evening. You know what that's like. But I took it anyways. And it was a friend of Paul's. I I won't mention his name, but it was a close friend of Paul's. And he said to me, Mr. Vigianity, yes, you have to talk to Paul Hellyer. And I said, why? At the time, I remember Paul was a, a minister of defense and all of that, but I didn't know why at the time. He just said, you have to talk to Paul. So I said, I'll take that under advisement. Thank you very much. And uh, I waited a couple of weeks, and I did call Paul a little bit later on with the understanding from Pierre Junot, a friend of Paul's, uh, who um, suggested that Paul read a very important book, and I, I'm sure Paul will outline that too. So I called Paul, and I said, listen, we're planning this symposium on UFOs. Uh, Would you like to be part of it because you've read the book and day after disclosure? In any case, Paul said, oh, no, no, I I couldn't do that, no. He refused my first invitation. I said, well, let me call you back after you finish reading the book, and we can talk again. So a couple of weeks went by, and I called Paul back, and I guess whatever you know the fates may be and and the gods opened up the heavens and and paul said yes i will be part of the ufo uh, symposium and then from that point on uh, we just extended the invitations to other people to speak at the conference and which we'll probably get into a bit later on so that's a very short thumbnail sketch of, of how it all happened to begin with right and paul how difficult a decision was that i mean were there friends and confidants and maybe even family members who said, Paul, listen, do you really want to do this? Think about your legacy. They talked about that later when I'd done it. But it was really a matter of conscience, uh, Richard, because after reading The Day After Roswell and realizing that it was the truth, and then, uh, as Victor has not mentioned, confirming this with the retired United States Air Force general, who, when I called him, he had been told what I was reading. And when I called him, he said, every word is true and more. And so with that confirmation and him going into the more for about 20 minutes and telling me that there had been face-to-face meetings between the United States officials and sentient beings from other star systems, I was confirmed in my conviction, which I already had then, that I should go public because I was afraid that at some stage the United States might, the Air Force might get us into a galactic war 
knowing their sort of propensity to shoot first and ask questions after. So I thought the American people don't know what's going on, and they should because this is a very important issue, and I have a responsibility to speak the truth so that some people at least will know what is actually happening and should take whatever action they feel is required to, you know, as a result. So that's sort of how it got going. And the other interesting part of it was I was getting married a week to the day after the speech at the University of Toronto. So I phoned my fiance, who was the widow of my best friend ever, you know, that I'd known for 30 or 40 years, and told her about it. And she was not wildly enthusiastic. But she said, if you feel it's important in the public interest, go ahead and do it. And I said, well, it'll just be a one-time thing, you know. I'll get it out <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> right. So I didn't yes. mean to tell her an untruth because I have a long, long reputation of telling the truth. And I pride myself on doing that. But it turned out that once I went public, then the papers started coming in from all over the world, some classified and some not and dozens of books, and then there were a lot of people who wanted to brief me, including Dr. Stephen Greer, and a whole list of others that were interested in meeting and uh, talking to me, and my learning curve started going up, and up, and up, and it's been going up ever since. It's interesting. It still is. Right. It's interesting because, if I'm remembering correctly, an earlier conversation that that we had, this started off as kind of just some summer reading. You were taking some books up to the cottage. Someone said, here, read this one, too. It was Pierre Junot who sent me the book. Right. And this was after he had been trying for two years to get me interested. And when he sent me this, I thought, I have, it would make good summer reading. Right, right. I couldn't find it when I wanted to take it up in 2004. So I had to read The Life of Pi, which uh, I found quite entertaining and didn't know until near the end that it was fiction. But this one was different. And in 2005, I was looking for another book, couldn't find it, and there staring me in the face was the day after Roswell, and so I took that, and that was uh, the beginning of this long journey. Right. I mean, it really changed the trajectory of your life. When you're reading Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, does it hit you immediately as credible, or are you reserving judgment until you can call some of your contacts in the U.S. for verification? No, it didn't take long for me to realize that it was credible, because I recognized the names of the generals, most of them, and many of the air bases, and I was familiar with those from my time in the uh, Department of National Defense. So I, it, would, it had the tenor of a True story from the time I really got into it. And, Victor, I'm going to get you in here in a minute to to ask some questions, but I want to ask you, Victor, a question, and that is when you realized you had the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries willing to come forward and speak at the University of Toronto and make this announcement that UFOs are real, what's going through your mind? Well, when I first called Paul and he said no uh, to begin with, I wasn't disappointed because I kind of anticipated that kind of reaction because I didn't know exactly how heavily he was into the whole whole situation. However, once I called him the second time and he said yes, and it wasn't sort of a hovering yes, it was a definite, absolute, I need to do this kind of yes. 
And from that point on, I realized that this will be a clock stopper in Canadian history, which it turned out to be. So going through my mind and realizing that we had a former deputy prime minister and former minister of defense, I knew after being involved in the UFO issue since 1975, that having someone like Paul come forward and reaffirm what I knew and what all of my colleagues knew and what the speakers at the Convocation Hall knew, to have Paul come forward and confirm this from his position was in fact a clock stopper. And I knew it at the time and I knew it all the way along and I know it right now today that what Paul has done is moved the uh, needle forward with respect to disclosure in a way that I don't think anybody else really could, especially within the Canadian context. And, and Paul, how did you, when you decided, you're, I'm going to call somebody and see if this stuff checks out that's in Corso's book, how do you make the decision who to call? I mean, did you have a, a short list? Did you have um, former colleagues in your time as Minister of Defense? Oh, no, it was, it was just uh, after reading, well, it, to go back just a little bit, Pierre Juno had persuade me, persuaded me to watch the uh, Peter Jennings ABC special. And I did that before I read the book. And all, I think it was two hours special. And uh, all of these former Air Force uh, pilots and, uh, and uh, air traffic controllers and uh, commercial pilots and policemen saying that they had seen UFOs um, had an effect on me so that this was uh, part of the conditioning and I said to myself, well, why would they lie? Nobody would pay them to lie and say that they had seen UFOs if they hadn't. So that was before I read Corso's book. And after reading Corso's book, I was already convinced, without any doubt whatsoever. But um, I was, I was uh, very anxious to check it out with um, this uh, retired Air Force general that uh, was a friend of my uh, of my nephew and who I had met and knew uh, just for verification. And of course, uh, when I phoned him, and even before I could say hello and how are you, he said every word is true and more. Well, that's a good start. Right, right. And I know, to my knowledge, uh, you've never identified this person aside from a retired Air Force general, correct? And, and was that uh, was that conversation contingent on you never revealing his name, or, or? Um, it wasn't contingent on it? But I know uh, that he would be in. I know from what happened later that he would have been in terrible trouble had I done that. When you say what happened later, are you able to share that? No. Well, there was a uh, one of the uh, officers that trailed me around for a year or two and uh, wanted me to say who it was because he was going to beat him up and uh, so on. A, a U.S. military official f- trailed yeah. you for a, a year wanting his name so that he could go and, and beat him up? And the CIA phoned me too, and uh, Paula Harris managed to uh, somehow divert that one. Um, Victor, we've we've got about two and a half minutes here. Do you want to uh, get to a question and and then we'll continue after the break? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's that's that is a, a very severe revelation with respect to um, 
how I guess the the complex of, of, of secrecy reacted to someone of Paul's stature coming forward and doing what he was doing. And that kind of reaction uh, by the United States government or whoever was making those kinds of threat threats um, is an indication that what Paul did was in fact momentous, that it was in fact uh, contacting someone who knew exactly what was going on within the, the UFO secrecy uh, labyrinth, and Paul having sort of wrenched that free from this particular general, uh, th- that was a threat to the system. That was a threat to the secrecy, to the to the truth embargo. And that's one of the things that I, I think that Paul, I think, has done uh, almost inadvertently in one way. And so you can tell by the reaction of this military complex that it wants this uh, secret uh, to, to be maintained. Uh, you can tell that what Paul did was, in fact, very, very important, or they wouldn't have reacted that way. Would you, would you sense that, Paul? Uh, they didn't like it, no. Did they ever threaten you directly, Paul? Um, not directly, no. No. Although they they tried to they tried to feed me disinformation several times, so that I would repeat something that they had given me, that they knew they could then show was only part truth or whatever, in an effort to discredit me. They tried to do that several times, but I, being an old farm boy and knowing the difference between wheat and chaff, <laughs> I managed to avoid uh, being sucked into any of those uh, situations. All right, uh, Paul and uh, Victor, stay put. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, continue to delve into uh, history, really. Fifteen years ago this month, the Honorable Paul Hellyer became the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries to state unequivocally UFOs are real, as real as the airplanes flying overhead. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, just a reminder, open lines at the top of the hour. Right now, the Honorable Paul Hellyer stays with us along with Victor Vigiani. And uh, Paul's latest book, Liberated, The Economics of Hope. Now, I know it's not officially out yet, Paul, but is that available as a pre- oh, I, pre-order? I don't know if you've checked in the last two or three days. Oh. Um, but I think it probably is available because I got mine in the... Uh uh, by uh, Express uh, two days ago. Ah, so it is available now at uh, Amazon and wherever good books are sold, I'm guessing? Right, it should be. Well, right. it, you know, it takes them a few days to uh, get the order filled, right. but uh, Amazon should have it now uh, or within a day or two. All right, liberated, the economics of hope, and um, we'll, we'll get around to discussing some of the uh, the finer points in that, that book right now. Uh, I wanted to, to go back to this conversation with this Air Force general. Um, and, and forgive me if, you know, this is going over well-trodden territory, but uh, it is, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And, and some of his revelations to you about various, uh, um, what do we call them, races of, of ETs that were interacting. Uh, can you walk us through some of those points that he made with you on no, the phone? No, he, he didn't get into that. I think, um, apart from uh, the, the fact that... Uh, 
U.S. officials that, that first of all, the book was, in his opinion, 100% true. I don't think that was quite, a, probably 95%. But, um, but um, he, he um, told me something that um, I didn't know, which I think a lot of people don't know, and that is that um, when you get in at the argument of nothing travels faster than the speed of light, um, it isn't true. And that uh, gravity travels faster than the speed of light. And that most of the spaceships are uh, anti-gravity. And there are other, you know, there, we don't get into wormholes and that sort of thing tonight, but uh, there are other means of speeding up travel through space that we just didn't know about and weren't in the books, of course, that we were taught uh, uh, during school. So uh, people like my, even one of my sons, he says, well, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. This is correct. We're just, that's what I call the old reality. And what I've been studying and researching and writing about uh, with these last four books, interestingly enough, each one of the last four books was supposed to be the last, and I think that this uh, liberate, liberated uh, the the economics of uh, of hope is in fact the last. I don't think I could get away with another one because uh, my wife is getting sick and tired of me being uh, working all the time and now workaholic. But um, the that uh, the, the the evolution of these things. The, the amount of information out there is so great that it's almost impossible to get your head around it. And in the first of the, of the four books that you mentioned, uh, Richard, the Light at the End of the Tunnel, the Survival Plan for the Human Species, uh, I had a little bit in about it, uh, about the species. I mentioned several of the species and, uh, and so on. And... Uh, I guess, you know, I think there was one chapter on this on this subject. When I wrote it, I thought it was my last book. Well, then in the next four years, I learned so much about what was really going on that I wrote the, uh, <clears throat> the Money Mafia, A World in Crisis. And that's where I uh, revealed that uh, the U.S. military had been taken over by the... Uh, by the Nazis, in Operation Paperclip, and afterward, and uh, that uh, they were doing all sorts of things that uh, they were keeping secret for uh, these last 70 years, and uh, that uh, the Americans had a problem that they had to uh, concern themselves with, and they should know about it. And at the end of the book, I proposed that they have to have a second uh, oath of uh, loyalty and uh, starting with the president go right down through the military industrial and intelligence because intelligence is in it to their ears an intelligence complex and um, so i i felt i had to write another book and and put in what i uh, had learned in those four years and then four years later i had to do the same thing with hope restored and uh and talk about the uh, the creation of the cosmos and uh, 
and some other things and how they t- tied together with the uh, problems that we face today. Um, and this latest one is not, it has one or two things that are new, but it's really going back to the fact that for about 300 years, we the people have been robbed blind by a few families who have dominated the banking and, uh, and financial system for the world, or well, at least the Western world, and who are so rich that, you know, if you start talking about it, you just uh, kind of find it almost difficult to realize. But uh, I think it was six or years or so ago, 88 families had as much wealth as all of the 99%, the other rest of the people in the world, and it dropped to uh, 80 families. And then the last uh, poll I saw was that 62 families own as much wealth as all of the other people of the world. And uh, this is the system that we've been living with. And when this coronavirus came along, and I knew that that was going to crash the system, the economic system, and uh, that huge sums of money would be necessary to uh, to keep from having a terrible recession or another Great Depression, then I decided I had to uh, write another book, which is the one that's just come out, to say enough is enough already, and we've got to change the system and take away the power, the monopoly that these few families have had to create money out of thin air and then lend it to us and expect to get it back with interest. That's what's been going on for, well, about 300 years, and it's been getting worse until they got a total monopoly, and it's got to stop, and the U.S. should uh, should seize the Fed, um, I would say without any compensation, because all of the, the uh, capital of the Fed represents uh, U.S. government debt, and this is all debt that was unnecessary. A few congressmen asleep just before Christmas, uh, over 100 years ago, gave away the, the, the most valuable right that any country has, and that is the right to create their own money, the most powerful economic tool in the whole world. And they gave it away, and they gave it to the richest, most ruthless, and most cunning, and most, uh, I would say, uh, what's a good word, amoral people in the world. The top bankers of the world. Unscrupulous might be the the best way. (laughs) Met secretly in Jekyll Island and uh, and came up with this uh, federal reserve system, which is neither federal nor reserve. Well, up here in Canada, just a quick aside, and we are approaching a a break, and Victor, I promise I'll get you uh, in for a question when we come back, but up here in Canada, it happened a little differently because we had the Bank of Canada, which was basically nationalized by Prime Minister Mackenzie King, and and all levels of government could borrow from the Bank of Canada at very low or zero interest. That's how we built the St. Lawrence Seaway, the Trans-Canada Highway. That's how we paid for our war effort. And then... I believe it was in the mid, maybe about about 1974 under Prime Minister Trudeau, they basically sidestepped the Bank of Canada Act and started going to international lenders. Yes, it was actually the Bank of Canada that made the decision 
Trudeau gets uh, blamed for it, but he didn't. He didn't even know what was going on, and I'm not sure that the governor did either. But they made the decision, and they uh, went into a system, of, in effect, a worldwide system under the Bank for International Settlements. And I have a, a whole chapter on that. Most people have never heard it. That's heard kind of the, it. the central it's bank of the central most banks. Powerful institutions in the world. Right. And 99% of my, of my friends have never heard of it. So what we did in 1974 was decide to take our orders from the Bank for International Settlements. And one of the th- things that they decided was that we, the Bank of Canada would no longer create uh, cheap money for the government. Because we had, as you say, from 1939 to 1974, the, the Bank of Canada created a whole lot of money at near zero cost. I say near zero because, well, I won't go into the mechanics right. because we haven't got time to talk about that tonight, but it was almost almost zero cost money. And with that, we put together the huge war effort that we had for a small country. And then uh, after the war, the infrastructure, our share of the St. Lawrence Seaway, which was the major share, Trans-Canada Highway, the Dew Line, which was and we had the, the major cost of that too, which was the the, the line of uh, of radars that went right around the periphery of the continent, and we paid for those and and a lot of uh, provincial infrastructure as well, and without creating any any debt, and then all of a sudden they make this change, and between fiscal year seventy four and seventy five, and two thousand thirteen fourteen. We paid a $1.37 trillion in, de- in interest, none of which was necessary. And you just think what you could do with $1.37 trillion. Right. Well, it's, tre- it's treasonous. The which we're in today. It's treasonous what happened. We'll, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, delve into that some further. Victor Vigiani has some questions as well. And uh, you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just a reminder, open lines, top of the hour, you, me, and the telephone. And uh, what what can I say? Just bring it. Uh, That's coming up uh, in about 20 minutes. Uh, Victor Vigiani, uh, over to you, my friend. Yeah, it's an intriguing conversation, Richard. You've raised some in in, uh, very explicit points with Paul. Paul, I just wanted to sort of throw something by you that um, if if these families, as you describe, who control... Uh, the amount of wealth that they in fact control. Um, when when I'm trying to link these two issues here together, um, when any kind of disclosure does happen with respect to the extraterrestrial presence, what effect do you think that that kind of disclosure will have on the monetary system that we have uh, in in the context of who these ET beings might be, whether or not they even have a monetary system themselves, and how locked in we are to this archaic thing called called money? How, how do you think that's going to uh, affect um, how the economic system of the world 
or the global uh, community might happen. I know that's a speculation on your part, but I'd love to hear your, your take on that. Well, my, my quick answer is, um, <clears throat> Victor, that it, it won't have any effect. <clears throat> Our problem is, is confined to Earth. We will learn things about other planets which have different systems. And maybe, you know, ultimately, uh, some of those might uh, apply here. But in the, in the time period that, uh, that we're concerned about and our children, um, we have to change the, the system so that instead of uh, some people having control of hundreds of trillions of dollars, literally, uh, and while others are starving, that the money, the money is redirected and, uh, and all sovereign countries start creating a certain amount of the money that they require and uh, enough to balance their budgets and to, uh, and to start uh, making a change in the distribution of wealth so that there are fewer people in the world uh, who are really poor and there are no people who are homeless or uh, or hungry, and this is quite possible within the system if we were to change it the way that uh, some of us have recommended to the government, and which I recommend in my book. And I, I have a formula there that I worked out uh, with a colleague uh, when I was uh, a member of the, the Committee on Monetary and Economic Reform, and... Uh, we presented it to the conservative government uh, six years ago, and they uh, didn't even uh, acknowledge it. And we presented it to the uh, present government, and they uh, haven't even acknowledged it. And consequently, uh, that has cost the Canadian people... Uh, uh, oh, uh, I guess about uh, $700 billion over over six years. And uh, our American friends are even worse off. You know, they have, they have paid to the uh, richest people in the, in the, in the world through the federal system, the federal reserve system, more trillion dollars than you can count. It's just been an absolute wash of money going from ordinary working people uh, through the system as a result of having to borrow the necessary money to uh, build the infrastructure or to uh, to make the economy expand and so on could you is, could you it, share your your formula with right? us could you share your formula with us well it's, it, it is a, to go back to the to system where the banks have to have um, uh, cash reserves ultimately of 34% of all of their deposits instead of zero, which is now, the system now. And this would be accomplished over seven years at the rate of 5% a year. And that the all of the, gov- the governments of the world would be able to uh, create an amount of money equal to 5% of the total bank deposits in their country every year for seven years until they reach this 34%. And it's a huge amount of money. And uh, the first in the first year, for example, if this system was extended across the Western world and so on, uh, I think it's something like uh, $6 trillion 
would be infused into the world uh, economic system, which would be enough to get it up and running from the pandemic and keep it running. And then at the end of the seven years, 34% of all the new money created after that would be um, created uh, by the government for the use of governments and, and uh, we they would split it between themselves, 50% for the federal governments, 25% divided between the uh, the provinces and the municipalities, and uh, everybody would have their own money, run their own show, they wouldn't have all of this red tape that they have at the present time, and so on. And But even more important is, is the question of power. And this, there are several uh, systems being put forward at the present time, modern monetary theory being one of them, which all have merit. <laughs> but the one we've put forward, and the one I put forward in the, in the book, is the only one that is specifically addressing the question of the power of these bankers to run the world, which in effect they have now. They have more power than the President of the United States, believe it or not. And that is a real problem that we may or may not have time to get into. Okay, we will we'll, uh, we'll take a time out and we can touch on that when we come back. Paul Hellyer stays with us. Liberated, the economics of hope. It's out now, folks. Get yourself a copy. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network stays with us. Back with more in a moment. Afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. So let's see if I understand this formula. Essentially, it comes down to this: um, the the government would would essentially circumvent the central bank or the Federal Reserve in the case of the United States or the international lenders by by printing their own money. So, for example, Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s he had the greenback. It was like a five dollar. It was paper currency. It wasn't backed by gold or silver. It was just backed by, I guess, the credibility of, of the U.S. government. Uh, and 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 Kennedy tried something similar with silver certificates. So, is it is it as simple as basically saying let's let's uh, let's go by the Bank of Canada Act again? It's 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 almost as simple. I I don't think governments can can go around their central banks anymore. They have to own them and run them. When I say run them, set their set their policies. And uh, what uh, our proposal does is instead of giving the central bank a bond, which has to be repaid, even at low interest, that you give them a, a, a certificate a stock certificate, non-refundable, non-transferable, non-redeemable in the country. Because I think it was uh, Edison who said that any country whose credit is good enough to issue a bond can issue a bill. And basically all you're doing is using the system that the, the bankers have, themselves have set up, and rather than than tear up the whole system... You use you use it, but you transform it from one where the capital of the bank can be invested 
uh, can be lent to 20 different people, organizations, or governments at once and get interest back from every one of them. Down to two, this is a leverage, down to twice what the cap, their capital, which it was when the Bank of uh, England was fo- uh, formed, uh, uh, chartered perhaps uh, just over a little, th- three, a little over 300 years ago. So they've gone from a ratio of two to one over the years. When I was, and in Canada, when I was uh, young, the uh, cash reserve was 8%, so you could lend them the same money 12 and a half times, which is too much in my opinion. And uh, we have to get that down to the point where it is fair, it is just. There's, the banks still have enough leverage to uh, to attend to the needs of small business and uh, and do their legitimate things, but where they in fact uh, don't uh, make the kind of, of return that uh, only people who print money can do. And they have to uh, act a little more like a, a uh, well, a public service, really, not uh, right. Just, just right. to get a little reason into the system, which would allow the banks to do their job, or the job that they were originally intended to do, and the governments to do their job, which is to start the making it a little easier for the people at the bottom to get food uh, on their table and pay their rent and uh, educate their kids and the things that have to be done. All right, Victor, I want you to jump in while time allows. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, Paul has got a, a really great handle on all of this. Um, and I know you've dealt with issues, you know, concerning, you know, student debt and all of that. You know, these kids coming out of the university with a $50,000 debt. Uh, what would you sense, Paul, would be the overall effect of other economists or other individuals or other bankers or whomever to buy into your scenario or the scenario that you're you're proposing? How many how many of these individuals within the economic system really kind of understand what you're saying and are saying to you, Paul? Yeah, this is workable. We might be able to do it. But how can we do it? Are there well, people most that, of them don't understand that you talk it because to? they don't? Even schools like the London School of Economics don't teach basic money and banking. They don't even know where money comes from. No, and that's true so, of the, all of the major economic schools. I think there's only one in the United States uh, where they teach what I would call would be uh, reasonable in this. I think it's the University of Kansas in Kansas City, where their economics department. Uh, understands the necessity of doing something like this. And uh, so most of them wouldn't understand unless they read my book carefully and uh, get a better understanding of the subject that they didn't get at university. And the people in the banks who are running them will fight against it fiercely because what they have going for them now is like, uh, you know, a a gold mine with someone else doing the work, getting the gold out of the out of the hills and just handing it to them, mm-hmm. and they're going to have to start working for the for a living a little bit, to a certain extent. Let me ask you, and this is um, 
highly speculative, obviously, uh, but I'm, I'm thinking you might have a, an opinion here. And that is, to what extent, not that, the, not that COVID is not real, it, the, the virus is real, obviously people have died, people have gotten sick, but that it has been used for cover in order for the powers that be to basically push the reset button. In other words, they didn't want, they didn't want the economy to collapse uh, because of debt and, and, and take the blame for it and the politicians so they could blame conveniently hide behind COVID-19 and say, well, we all have to hide in our basement and the economy is going to contract. Um, but it's basically been used to reset. What do you think of that? Well, that's, that's an interesting uh, subject, which I more or less uh, get to at the end of the book, because they're planning really to change the system into a crypto cryptocurrencies. Um, so that, in effect, the people who are presently running the world would still be able to run the world because they would have a system where they had your money in their control. They would know what you had on uh, deposit, and if they didn't like you, they could just... uh, I'm looking for a good word here. They could cause you more trouble... Cancel, <laughs> cancel you. <laughs> lose your lose your account. Right, right. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing that's underway at this very pleasant present time. Um, and whether whether there was some involvement in this or not, I don't know. I I raised the question because uh, at the beginning of the year, I, there was a a uh, rumor on the street, as it were. That they would crash the system again this year, and uh, it has crashed. And whether they had any part in that or not, I don't know. But I do know it was very convenient for what they are doing and wanted to do. And sometimes you say, "Well, uh, follow the money if you want to find out uh, the source of the problem." So I I, I mentioned those uh, in the book uh, that. Uh, I think maybe the truth will come out someday. Maybe it never will. But uh, the bankers are smiling all the way to their... They're, they're smiling all the way home while ordinary people are wondering where their next month's rent's going to come from and whether they will ever be able to reestablish their little business that, that uh, has been ruined in the last eight months. Uh, and very quickly, last word, Paul... Uh are you are you hopeful that uh, UFO disclosure is is imminent? Well, there's more of it coming uh, uh, now than ever before, Victor. The the cabal and the U.S. forces have put out a couple of feelers. The New York Times had a little piece in recently, and uh, the, the U.S. Navy has put out a couple of uh, things saying that they're they're Pilots were chasing uh, UFOs. They knew they were real, and uh, but they didn't know what they wanted. Well, that's a lie because they know exactly what's going on. The U.S. Navy, I think, fished the first uh, UFO out of the South Pacific in 1945, and they've been involved deeply in the business ever since. And they and the Air Force have been running parallel operations, and they and they 
been part of the cover-up. And uh, so now the problem they have is trying to explain how they've got a, a space force when they haven't yet officially acknowledged the existence of UFOs. And they have one of the, you know, they have a, a huge fleet of, of spaceships. And how do you explain it to your taxpayers? Well, you start leaking little stories that would have been news if they'd been put out 70 years ago, or even 60 or 50 years ago. But to leave it uh, for 70 years until they've got the Space Force built, which in, also, as you know in my book, I say I think it could be a threat to the American people because of the, who controls it. Right, and, and sadly, we are out of time, but we'll have to do this again. Um, Paul, I, I really appreciate you staying up. Again, liberated the economics of hope. Thank you. And uh, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, thank you to you. Gentlemen, appreciate it. It's a, pre- it's a pleasure. Good night. Thanks, Victor. All right, open lines when we come back. <laughs> 